Happy New Year to the Tabernacle. Hey, that was a lot better. Happy New Year in Manistee and those that are uh, listening online. I say a lot better because the 9 a.m. I said Happy New Year and they went, it's kind of like that. So I think they're having a crappy New Year. But anyways, I hope uh, it's been good for you. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors and I'm so glad um, that you've joined us. Uh, We're in our series called The Son of God. We believe at the tabernacle, every bit of the Bible, and the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe that? I hope so, because if he was not or is not the Son of God, then this is all a colossal waste of time. But he is the Son of God, and uh, that's one of the reasons uh, Luke wrote his gospel, so that we would know that it is true. Uh, I need to warn you, this weekend, we're kicking off 2022, not with some little Christmas cookies. Uh, This is going to be steak, right? This is going to be more teaching than preaching, because what we're going to do is we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus Christ. Now, my hope and my prayer is that while I'm teaching on this moment where Jesus defeated Satan or actually put Satan in check, beginning his victory over Satan by resisting temptation that God's spirit will speak directly to your heart on how we can resist temptation. Anyone here struggle with temptation? All right, a few of us, a lot of us, uh, all of us, how about that, right? Myself included. Uh, And of course, we're tempted to sin and sin hurts God and I wanna love God and serve God and worship God and I don't want anything uh, between me and God as far as our relationship goes. But the problem is, is we're always being tempted. So we're going to look at how Jesus was tempted, and maybe in doing so, uh, there'll be something for us. And like I said, I'm going to trust that God's Spirit will translate and speak straight to your heart. So if you have a Bible, if you turn to Luke chapter 4, that's where uh, Luke records the temptation. And while you're turning there, let me tell you what happened in Luke chapter 3. We're not going to cover Luke chapter 3. I'm going to encourage you to go to our podcast. Uh, You can get that on the tab app. I'm sure there's a place, well, our website is down right now, but I'm sure there's a place on Facebook where you can find that. But we actually had a great discussion of Luke chapter three this past week, one with Seth and one with Heidi Burgess. That was cool. That's a lady who knows the Bible. So Britain, it's not so much for Britain and I, we're doing our same cokes and jokes, but those guys really helped us dig in deep there. So you want to check that out. But what's important for you to know in setting up chapter four, don't miss this, This is what happened in chapter three. First of all, Jesus is baptized. Now, Jesus didn't get baptized because he needed to be washed clean of any sins. In fact, when he came to be baptized, his cousin, John the Baptist, said, oh, no, 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 you should be baptizing me. I'm not worthy to tie your sandals, right? And Jesus said, look, let's just do this because we need to fulfill all righteousness. He's an example to us. Later on, Jesus told his disciples, us, go make more disciples and baptize them. So every summer we get to baptism. Someone's like, I'm a Christian. Why do I need to be baptized? Uh, Because Jesus said so. Is that good enough for you? Yeah. And second, if it's good enough for Jesus to be baptized, I, a sinner, it's good enough for me. So he was modeling something for us. But it's what happened at the baptism that I think is preserved significantly for us. And if you look back in chapter three, or if you read about it in in the book of Matthew, when Jesus came up out of the water, don't miss this. It says the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. Holy Spirit's not a dove, but it was described like a dove. And then there was a voice from heaven. God, the father's voice said, this 
is my beloved son. In him, I'm well pleased. And there's a whole separate sermon series we could do on the importance of every child hearing his or her father give that sort of blessing and that sort of affirmation, right? That's why most of us are in therapy because we didn't get it. And, and so Jesus hears his father's love, his father's affirmation, and witnesses hear the same thing. This is my son. Why is that significant? God the father, like a clap of thunder, this is the son of God. Get it? Now, that's important in going into chapter four. And then chapter three ends with this, a genealogy. Do you know what a genealogy is? That's basically Dr. Luke logged into Ancestry.com and did a whole family tree presentation on Jesus' line going all the way back to Adam. Now, I'm not going to lie. When I've read through the Bible, I get to a genealogy. I usually get to such and such was the son of such and such was the son of... Okay, well, when does this end, right? And we kind of skip through the genealogy, but there's no wasted words in scripture. Why would God's spirit inspire Dr. Luke to have those two things in chapter three? God's voice saying, this is my son. He's the son of God. And then a genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam, I think it's intentional. He's saying Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's fully God and he's fully man. That's a hypostatic union. That's a big $10 word for, I don't understand how that happens. But he was fully God and fully man. Why is that important? Well, I don't know about you, but I've always thought when I read about the temptation, well, of course it was easy for Jesus to resist temptation. He was God. He was cheating. That's not true. Fully God, fully man. The difference is he was able to resist temptation and I'm still working on it, but I can follow his example. Are you with me? So we mustn't think silly thoughts like somehow Jesus had an advantage. In fact, most likely the attack, the onslaught of Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness was greater than anything we'll ever see. And yet scripture says he was tempted in every way that we're tempted, but did not sin. I really like this Jesus. So with that in our minds, let's go to chapter four. We'll start in verse one. We'll read the story. We'll make some observations and hopefully God's spirit will say something to you about how we can resist temptation. It says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple 
and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word. And the way the story goes, there's some things we can pick up right away that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit on command from God the Father into this testing in the wilderness. This wilderness place is a horrible place. There's no drive-throughs. There's no convenience stores. And, And led by the Spirit, he's there to be in communion with God with no distractions, including food. So he's on a 40-day fast. And, and, and it says, understatement of the, of, the, you know, of the morning, that at the end of the 40 days, he was very hungry. If those of us that did the fast uh, last Easter, we could barely make it 36 hours. Our Lord and Savior went 40 days without food, and at the end of this time, he's very hungry. And he's been led by the spirit there. And it says that during the 40 days, he was tempted the entire time. For 40 days, he was tempted. Now, we're given three instances of temptation. But for 40 days, he's being tempted by the evil one to do the unthinkable. And that's this fully God, fully man, God in flesh, to sin. And yet he didn't do it. He didn't do it. Now, here's some observations about how this whole temptation thing works, how it works with Jesus, and I believe how it works with us. First of all, Satan comes to Jesus when he's weak. He's weak. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. You're going to be weakened. You don't have the nutrients. You don't have the calories, right? You're you're just drinking water. He would have been gaunt. His face is ashen. He's unkempt. He's out there uh, camping, and he's weak. And isn't that how the enemy comes to us? You know, when I think about it is, is the times when I give in to sin or when temptation is the worst is when I'm hungry, when I'm angry, when I'm lonely, and when I'm tired. Oh, I was just tired. That's why I snapped at the kids. I was just angry. That's why I drank all the liquor. Oh, I was just lonely. That's why I dot, dot, dot. It's called halt. Some of you have heard that before, right? When we're weak, that's when the enemy comes. And so the enemy comes to Jesus when he's weak in the wilderness, 40 days, no food. And what's the first thing he goes after? He goes after his identity. If you are the son of God. Remember chapter three? His father just affirmed, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. And I think Satan does the same thing to us. Oh, you're Mr. Holy Pants, are you? Well, if you're so holy, why not dot, dot, dot? Oh, you're little Miss Righteousness, are you? Oh, you're sealed in the whole. Oh, you're a child of God. Oh, the enemy can't take what you have? Watch this. He comes when he's weak. He comes after his identity. There's one more thing that I've noticed, and this is what stuck out to me, and this is going to be our focus, is the enemy comes at Jesus, tempting him with a formula. In fact, 
That's the title of this message, The Temptation of Religion. Because this is what he says. Jesus, if you do this, I'll give you this. If you go here, I'll give you fill in the blank. And that's exactly what religion is. And religion is the worst. Now, if you've been here for more than a minute, you're like, here he goes again, talking about religion. To my dying breath, I will preach against religion because it distracts us from a love relationship with Jesus Christ. It's something false instead of something real. It's something man-made instead of something God-made. And this is what religion does. It says, put your good behavior in here and God gives you your blessing. It's where prosperity gospel comes from. And you say, well, I don't believe in prosperity gospel. But we wonder, why hasn't the marriage worked? Why don't the kids work? Why don't the finances work? Why don't I feel happy? Right? I put in all my good behavior. Now give me my blessing. So at best, we treat God like a divine vending machine. I put in all my good works here. And I expect my bag of Cheetos. At worst, we treat him like a prostitute. And that's what Satan's doing. It's the temptation of religion. Or another way to put it, he's offering him transactional worship. Now, I told you this was steak. Don't check out on me, all right? Cookies will come later. If you're hoping for cokes and jokes, just stay with me for a second. Transactional worship is this. And this is for some of us today. We're not looking for a real relationship with God because that would be too intimate and close. Instead, we just want a contract. Here's my church attendance. Heck, I might even go to merge and become a member. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give regularly to, you know what, I'm even going to tithe uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to do the service thing and I'm going to do all the things. That's my end of the contract. Now give me my blessing. The problem is, is we're horrible at keeping up our end of the deal. But that's what we go looking for is a contract. The contract is me-centered. It's not you-centered. The contract is me-centered. It's not God-centered. You're looking at me weird. I don't know if they're looking at me weird in Manistee. I don't have those powers. But let me come at it from a different angle. I've learned more about what it means to worship and serve God through marriage than anything else. Okay, so I'm, my wife's here, so I've got to be careful. I'm not going to look in her direction. Don't you look at her either. You just think about you, okay? You just think about you. But here's the deal. If I treat our marriage like a contract, I'll do this, but you better do this. I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and you better bring your A game on that level. Ladies, how attractive is that to your heart? That's why we come up with stupid ideas like, oh, our marriage is going to be a 50-50. We're going to have a 50-50 marriage. I always talk to couples about their glorious ideas of 50-50 marriage. 50-50 marriages last about a minute because it's all about, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give half and you better give your half and that'll make 100 and so we're good. What happens when life happens? What happens when someone loses their job? What happens when someone struggles with depression? What happens when someone gets sick? What happens when somebody can't bring their half? Well, now it's 70-30 and then I get full of resentment and bitterness. A better marriage is one where both are bringing their best, 100%, 100%. 
And it's not about what I can get, it's what I can give. Those aren't just words. Those aren't just words. Because I believe in our hearts, not just ladies' hearts, but in the men's hearts, we know that to be true. That that's a glorious marriage where both are doing their best to love and serve the other person. Not just in it for what I can give. You see, when it's a contract, when it's a transactional relationship, when I'm not getting mine, what do I do? I find a different one. I trade up. That's what Satan's offering Jesus. He's saying, let's have a transaction. Let's make a little contract. You do what I want you to do, and I'll give you what you want. So what are the specifics? Let's look at the specifics of the temptation. The first temptation, Jesus is hungry, and uh, Satan comes, and he says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, on the face of it, it doesn't sound like a real bad thing. Just turn the stones into bread, and, and then you won't be hungry. Except that God had led him by his spirit into the wilderness, into this fast for 40 days in the wilderness. So if he's to turn the stones into bread, he's defying his father. But the temptation is more than just hunger. He's tempting Jesus to dissatisfaction. To dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with what? With God. Essentially, he's saying, you know what? If God really loved you, he'd have provided some food for you. If God really loved you, he wouldn't want you to struggle. If God really loved you, right, he would have provided something so you weren't so hungry and weak out here, you wouldn't be having this conversation with me. So let's just go ahead and turn these stones into bread. Anyone ever tempted to dissatisfaction? No, seriously, anyone ever that? Are you joking? It's the number one temptation we struggle with. Every commercial on television is a temptation for you to be dissatisfied with whatever it is you have. Your car is crappy. Here's a better car. Your car eats gas. Here's an electric car. Forget cars altogether. You need a truck. Not only do you need a truck, if you have a truck, you need a better truck, one that can pull the space shuttle, (laughs) right? Your chips are crappy chips. You need these chips. They have a better crunch. Look how happy these people are eating the chips. Aren't you dissatisfied with your chips or your soda or your abs or whatever you're dissatisfied with? The enemy does that all the time. You deserve better. Those three words, I deserve better, all sin stems from those three words. I deserve more me time. I deserve more play time. I deserve more stuff. I deserve more happy. I've lost count of how many people I've had conversations with where they were going down a wrong road. And the last ditch was to have a conversation with a preacher. I remember one guy in particular, he was walking out on a wife and a bunch of kids. And uh, he was going to go chase the lie of a mistress. I said, don't do it. You know better, man. You've been to church, you've been to fight club, you're a member. What are you doing? And he said, I'm just not happy, and I can't imagine God wouldn't want me to be happy. (laughs) It's not about happy. There's happy along the way, but it's about joy. And Jesus' answer, he answers with scripture. He actually quotes scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 8, when he says, have you not heard it said that man shall not live by bread alone? Do you know what he means by that? And this is hope for us. 
You are more than your desires. You're more than your desires. It's not all about having your desires fulfilled. In fact, we know that we need to discipline our desires. If we don't learn to discipline our desires, our whole civilization would would result in chaos. You're more than your desires. There's things that are more important than your desires. Like worshiping God, serving God, being faithful to your spouse, being faithful to your children, being faithful at your job, not being a thief, not being a liar, not being a murderer. We're not slaves to our desires. And that's why Jesus says, have you not heard? (laughs) There's more important things than bread, buddy. The temptation to satisfaction. The second one is a temptation to compromise, to compromise. And now Satan starts to wise up because Jesus answered with scripture. He decides that, you know what? I'm gonna kind of make this lie a little bit more intricate. And he says, if you'll worship me, I'm gonna give you all the authority on heaven and earth. Now, I gotta back up for a second because it says in there that somehow Satan and Jesus went to a high place where they could see all the kingdoms. I'm gonna tell you exactly how that happened, which is I have no idea. There's no mountain high enough. There's no, I mean, were they in outer space? I don't know, but the Bible said it, so I take it by faith. What I don't believe, and I think it's foolish to believe, is that somehow God and Satan are having this conversation in his mind. I don't think that's possible for two reasons. One, Satan can't read God in flesh's mind. And second, there's no sin in Jesus, so he's got no leverage to plant something there. So somehow, literally, they're in a place or a space where they see all the kingdoms of earth. Now, this sounds like a weird temptation to us. I have never been tempted to to rule the world. (laughs) But remember, he's fully God and fully man, and he knows what the plan is. And the plan says that one day, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the plan. But there's some getting there we got to do. And what Satan was saying is, you know what? I've been given all this authority and I can give it to whoever I want. I'll give it to you. You just need to worship me. He's tempting him to compromise with Satan. Compromise how? Well, scripture says that Satan is the prince of the air. He's the prince of the powers of this world. And there's a little bit of truth in his lie. He has been given authority on earth. He's been allowed to kind of rule in this time before Jesus comes back. That part is true. But the lie is this. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. He can only do what God allows him to do. So he's trying this little lie And what he's saying is, Jesus, if you will bow down to me, if you will compromise, you can avoid pain, struggle, and the cross. Anyone ever tempted that way, to compromise, to avoid pain and struggle? That's the second biggest temptation. I don't want the pain and struggle of a real relationship, so I'm going to compromise. I don't want the pain and struggle of saving up my money, so I'm going to take what's not mine. I don't want the pain and struggle of whatever obedience I'm called to, and instead, I'm going to avoid it by compromising with the evil one. And that's what he's 
saying to Jesus, Jesus, we don't need all that cross business. We don't need the cat of nine tails. We don't need the crown of thorns. Church, we buy this all the time. And it just hit me where where it happens most of the time. Jesus said over and over, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's pain, that's struggle, that's sweat, toil, tears, and sometimes blood. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it meant for him. That's what it means for us. But scripture says, in the latter days, we'll run from that teaching and we'll run to teaching that'll give our itching ears what we want to hear, that Jesus wants you to be happy and wealthy and healthy and live forever. And that's a lie. We compromise all the time. Let me find a preacher that's just a little bit more upbeat, a little bit too much fire and brimstone at the tab, a little too much truth, right? I do the same thing. We compromise the truth. Well, Jesus answers him with scripture. Again, Deuteronomy chapter six. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God in him only shall you serve. You see, Satan keeps doing, says, if you do this, I'm gonna give you this. And Jesus keeps responding with, it's not about me, it's about worshiping him. This fully God and fully man is showing us something different than transactional worship. Finally, we get to the last temptation as recorded by Luke. Again, he takes him to this high point on a temple. Again, I don't know how they got there. Did they teleport? Did they fly? Well, you're talking about a spirit or or you're talking about a fallen angel and you're talking about the son of God. So I don't think it was too hard, but somehow they're at the top of the pinnacle of the temple. So it's the highest point. Imagine if they had a steeple, they didn't have a steeple, but it's the point, it's the top and it's on the temple mount and there's a bunch of worshipers there. And Satan says, you know what you could do? And now he quotes scripture. If you threw yourself down, I think I remember a verse that says he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they're gonna catch you lest you strike your foot against a stone. So why don't you go ahead and just take a swan dive off here and all these people will see it and they'll be wow. And it's another little chance to avoid all the pain and struggle of what he's gotta go through. And Jesus' response to this, it is said, again, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's the third temptation. First is to be dissatisfied with whatever God has given me. I deserve better. I'm not gonna live life on God's terms. I want it on my terms. I'm, sat, I'm dissatisfied. The second one is to compromise. And the third is to test God. Has anyone here ever thought or been tempted to test God? Oh yeah, we do it all the time. God, if you're really real, make this light turn green right now. Don't you test God. God will give you my whole life and I'll actually start to tithe, but you better give me a front row park of spade at Walmart. Oh, no tithe for you because that's testing God. I'm being silly, but it's true. Testing God is, Satan was saying to him, if you're really the son of God and his word is really true, let's push it. Take a swan dive, expose yourself to extreme danger and let's see if God catches you. We do that all the time. That's when we do this. This is testing God. I know this is the line, but I'm gonna step over it 
And then I'm gonna ask forgiveness later, testing God. Testing God. We test God with, Lord, please get a hold of my child's heart. Make him or her follow you with their whole life. Protect them from sin and the evil one so you know, all the good stuff can happen. While at the same time, you never pray with your kid. You never read your Bible to the kid. You don't take your kid to church. You don't make your kid go to church because you wouldn't want them to be mad. Uh, you don't take them to Foundry or to FCA. You don't put them in a position to learn anything about God. You don't talk to them about God, but you're over here praying to God that it's all gonna work out. That's testing God. God, please protect me from this sandwich of diabetes I'm about to eat. When you're eating all the bacon and all the sugar and all the, I mean, we do that. I'm trying to use examples that aren't too hurtful, but we test God all the time. And Jesus says, we're not supposed to push God. He's faithful and he's true. The most practical example I can think of is when my wife and I were dating. Now I'm in real trouble right now because I'm talking about my wife again and involved dating. This is what we used to do in the college lunch line is she came up with a game that she liked to play and I hate. And it went like this. I would be standing behind her to go through the cafeteria line. And then all of a sudden, she's like, do you love me? Of course I love you. Uh, uh, will you catch me if I fall? You know I will. And all of a sudden, she just started doing the nasty plunge, going backwards. And I'd catch her. I said, what are you doing, man? What's you know, catch her. Oh, that's kind of cute. But, but the 10 times later, not real cute. You know, and it was getting further and further. And there was one, like, she was just confident in that. And she was just taking the nasty plunge. And the only way I could get her to stop is literally to catch her and lay her on the ground. And then she had to get up off the ground. Why'd you do that? Come on. I thought she said you'd catch me. I am going to catch you every time and just lay you on the ground. And then she quit. She was testing me. Aren't there ways we do that with God? We test God. How far can I push his mercy, his grace, and forgiveness? See, I think what Jesus was doing by resisting temptation is he he was showing that there's an option to transactional worship, and it's what I'm calling transformational worship. Transformational worship. Now, I know there's really big words, but just stick with me. It's worshiping God for who he is and what he's done and letting the transformation happen naturally. My wife and I will be married 30 years this January. Both of us are very different people from whom we've married. We've been transformed. And there's been ups and there's been downs. But the transformation has happened because we've stayed in the struggle together. We've stayed in the struggle together. Transformational worship is about relationship. Now, Jesus didn't need to be transformed. But when I worship God the way Jesus worshiped God, when I resist temptation the way Jesus resisted temptation, that's when the changed life happens. That's when I'm loving God and worshiping God and serving God and obeying God just because he's God. And then you're surprised by the blessings. Then you're grateful for the blessings. I don't get dissatisfied because I don't have this expectation of God, except that he's real and I'm believing his word is true, that he loves me unconditionally. That's how transformation happens. Now, here's going to be my third marriage reference, in which case I might need one of y'all's couch. 
But this is the best example I could think of. So you know how Christmas is just a big stress fest, isn't it? I mean, maybe yours wasn't, but I decided not to be a Grinch. And so it was a stress fest. And it's the shopping and the wrapping and the Christmas and the families and the punch and you got to get there on time and then Secret Santa and the party and then wrap all the gifts and then 50 Christmas Eve services because Victoria's a nut job and then, uh, and then Christmas Day, the very next day. And then to top it all off, last Sunday, a week ago today, put everybody in two vehicles because now our family's bigger, so we need two vehicles. We're going to caravan or caravan down to the Vermilia family Christmas down in Indiana. Right? So I found myself just, can I just say the word stress? Are you with me? Okay, so you get it. Maybe you can counsel me later. But we get down there and you know, it's Sunday night and it's, and it's late at night and, and we're about to fall asleep, my wife and I, in the guest room that we were in. And then I decided to open my mouth. I had something that I needed to say. And it was essentially, you don't need to know all the details, but it, it was like, you know what I need you to, pri- I mean, we to prioritize more in this relationship. You see where I went there? And I made it about we because I'm a brilliant manipulator. And it was like, Dush. well, let me just tell you, uh, there was a fight. Because it was essentially, this is what I need you to do so I'll be more satisfied in however you're acting or however we are. Essentially, I was going, hey, I'm over here. And this is the blessing that I expect. This is the behavior, right? When we're in these stressful situations. Needless to say, it didn't go well for me. There was a spat and there was a conversation and we agreed to disagree and just be friendly and and just leave it there and try to go to sleep. Three days, you've never done that? Did I let you down? You're looking at me like, oh my gosh, John and Darcy on the rocks. You calm down. I have a camera in your house. So, I don't know, three, four days later, we're driving home and it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I, I was listening to something and I had to stop the thing. And I said to her something to the effect of, hey, remember I, that thing I said to you on Sunday night? Yeah. Uh, can I take that back? <laughs> That's not what I meant. I mean, I meant that at the time, but now I realize that's not what I meant. And this sermon was very much on my mind. And essentially, I had to come back with what I meant to say on Sunday night or what I should have said and what I'm saying to you now is that I need to prioritize being a better man, a better husband, and serve you better. That's what I need to prioritize. You see the subtle shift? I can't control anybody, and neither can you. Why is it then that we think we can control God? He wants our love, our worship, our adoration, our service strictly because of who he is. And I do that, the blessing will come, but I don't live for the blessing. Even if it does not, I'll do it anyway. And I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to test him. And that's how transformation happens. Well, I thought that I was going to get this sermon done on time, but I didn't get you all a Christmas present. So here we go. Overtime. Jesus won a big victory in the wilderness. In fact, 
you could say that when he resisted temptation those 40 days, that he put Satan in check. And then through his death, burial, resurrection, he put him in checkmate. And one day when he comes back on a white horse, he's going to flick that power right over and it's done. But that's how big this is. What did he do? The first thing he did by winning in the wilderness is Jesus broke sin's dominance. Sin was undefeated. Every other person who'd ever been tempted, Satan had defeated. Jesus was the first one to knock him off his perch. Everyone else caved. But by breaking sin's dominance, it says in Hebrews chapter two, those of us that lived in fear and as slaves to sin, now we have a champion that can lead us out. Is anybody getting fired up? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. His victory means the atonement is possible. What's the atonement? His sacrifice on the cross, the perfect Passover lamb, his blood shed for our sin. If he would have caved in the wilderness, he's not a good enough sacrifice. He makes the atonement possible. Again, in Hebrews 2, it says, because he was victorious over sin, he's a great high priest. He can go between us and God. He's worthy. You don't need another lawyer. You don't need another argument. You you don't need any other priest. We have one great high priest, and it ain't me. It's Jesus Christ. And he goes between us because he was victorious over sin. It was a big deal. And lastly, and this is, I love this part. Again, it says in Hebrews 2, because Jesus was tempted every way that you and I are tempted, fully God and fully man, the fully man part can sympathize with my weakness. He knows what it's like to be hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and have the tempter come. You see, Satan just didn't tempt Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness. He tempted him all throughout his ministry. Remember that time when Peter tried the old compromise move? He's like, oh, Lord, you don't need to go to the cross. Don't talk this way in front of the boys. Remember what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. He tempted him all the way to the garden. Again, though, he took it to God. Lord, if there's any other way, I don't want to do this cross thing. Not my will, but your will be done. Because he's been there, he can sympathize. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. By the way, this is a good one if you're a memorizer. And even if you're not, it says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to to endure it. So there's a warning there, but there's also hope. Here's the warning. The warning is none of us are special. No temptation that you're undergoing, someone else hasn't already been tempted that way. You're not unique. Jesus faced the same temptation. That's why it says there's no temptations. That's not common to man. But this high priest who sympathizes with you because He was God in flesh that experienced temptation. He will provide a way out, a way of escape. That means whatever you face this week, there's a way out. You don't have to do it. You weren't born that way. You're not locked in. It may be a struggle. There may be some blood, sweat, tears, but there's a way out. There's a way out. 
He'll provide the way out because he loves you, because he cares for you. And so I wonder what God is saying to you this morning. Here, Manistee Online, wherever you're at. I don't know your struggle. I'm not looking at anybody. My eyes can't see into your soul. But I know we all face temptation. I know we have a choice. The choice is on one hand to continue to treat God like a transaction. Or instead to worship and serve him. Strictly for who he is and what he's done. And experience transformation. So I'm going to invite the bands to come out. And they're going to lead us in a closing song. And I would invite you to bow your heads with me. And this is the moment to ask God, what do you want me to do with this? And I believe there's something. Despite me, I believe there's something. What do you want me to do with this? If I treated this relationship with God like, like a contract so I can get something... Or have I followed his lead like Jesus? Through trials? As the song says, even through toils and snares? Trusting his heart, trusting his plan, trusting that there's a way to get out of temptation and not sin. Father God, thank you for sending your son. Spirit, thank you for leading him into the wilderness. Jesus, thank you for winning. Thank you for defeating sin and Satan in that wilderness because you knew that I couldn't and wouldn't. Thank you that you're the undefeated and that I can worship and serve and follow you because of your sinless perfection. Thank you that you understand our weakness and for the ways of escape that you give us. And Father, I pray that you would lead us as you taught us to pray, not into temptation, that you would help us to stay away from the evil one. God, forgive me for the times that I have tested your grace and willfully sinned God, would you make us worshipers that are transformational worshipers that draw near to you because of who you are. So we love you, and it's in the name of your son, Jesus, the son of God, we pray. Amen.